Good morning. We'd like to welcome each of you. We do have several visitors with us today, and we want you to know how much we appreciate your being with us. And we want to encourage you to study the Bible with us together over the next few minutes as we consider what Paul said to the Philippians. For those of you who are visiting, we are studying the book of Philippians, and this morning we're going to study chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. And we've titled this series, Down by the Riverside, describing what occurred as Paul began the work there in Philippi as he met with Lydia and the ladies who met there. This morning I want to begin our lesson with the asking of a question, and I'm sure that many of you will identify with that. Do you know what makes parents happy? I would say most of us can say, well, as parents we'd like for our children to bring home good grades. We like it when our children uh, say yes ma'am and no ma'am and uh, exhibit a certain amount of respect. But I've observed over the years that as people get older and parents of adult children look at their children, one of the things that they really want to see their children do is to get along. They want to see the brothers and the sisters be able to love one another, to get along and to be peaceful and to be kind. We do know that too many families live with strife. That is, they live with a constant controversy among themselves. We know that people are like the family of Joseph. In Genesis chapter 37 and verse 4, Moses records, But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. It's sad to say that there are a lot of people like the family of Joseph. They cannot speak peaceably to one another. When you think about that, do you know what makes God happy with regards to his children? And I think you might guess that in advance. For instance, in John chapter 20, verses 17, verses 20 and 21, Jesus is praying a prayer to the Father. He recognizes the situation in which uh, this world is in, and he says to him, I do not pray for these alone, talking about the apostles, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. When you read those words, you recognize our Savior is pleading for the unity of God's children. Back earlier in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, when Jesus addressed those disciples, he said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And then I cannot miss what the psalmist David said in Psalm 133, verse 1, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. I am convinced that reading the book of Philippians, that the church there was a great congregation of God's people. 
They were striving to see that the gospel was carried into all the world and that, that there was a great influence. But I also recognize the fact that sometimes not everybody is as together as they ought to be. And so thus Paul will begin chapter 2, number 1 with an exhortation in verses 1 and 2. He's got a message of what he wants them to understand. Then second of all, he will have an explanation of how to fulfill this. Here's what I want you to do. Here's how you fulfill it. And then finally, so that we can fully grasp it, he will give us an example of Christ in verses 5 through 8. Let's begin as we explore Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to review again what was just read for us. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Paul begins this statement with four conditional statements. He begins each one of them with the word if. These are things that he is trying to get them to see that is a basis for what he is asking and so if you will do this, if this exists, then try this. He begins, if there is any consolation in Christ. The word consolation here is often translated comfort itself. Many of you have heard me say that Jesus is our paraclete. That's the original word found in John 14 and 16 where it is translated comforter in the original King James, helper in the new King James. And the word comes from a word which means to call beside. You call someone to your side to help you. It's also found in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, where John writes, Beloved, he says, I pray that you will not sin, but if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. The word advocate there is that same word. It means to call somebody there to help you. It's used of Barnabas in Acts 4 verse 36. And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus. The word encouragement there is that same idea, the same word. You have somebody there. If there's any encouragement, any comfort, any helper in Christ, who should be the one who would help me when times are difficult? My spiritual brethren. If there is any help there in Christ. The second thing he says, if any comfort of love. The word comfort here is a little bit different. I put it on the screen, paramithian, so you can see that it begins in the same idea. But it means to speak beside, which was a, a metaphor, an idiom, if you will, 
to mean to say, give me some encouraging words, a persuasive speech. If there's anybody who loves somebody enough to give them that pep talk, if you will, that comfort of love. It's found in 1 Corinthians 14 in verse 3. But he who prophesies speaks edification. That's that first word we talked about. And our exhortation and then comfort of man. That word comfort is the one that is found here. If any fellowship of the Spirit. When you think of the word fellowship, Paul's already talked about that in chapter 1 in verse 5. And the idea of fellowship means we do things together like we're partners. The fellowship of the Spirit here is the fellowship that the Spirit has brought through His message. In Ephesians chapter 4 verse 3 we read, Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The Spirit has provided this unity here. And we enjoy that fellowship with the Spirit and with other faithful Christians. In 1 John chapter 1 and verse 3, he says, That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. You see there is that vertical Fellowship, or the, not vertical, that's horizontal, that we have among one another, and then the vertical fellowship that we have with God. That is the picture that we have here of fellowship with the Spirit. And then the fourth condition, he says, if there is any affection and mercy. You'll notice that the original King James uses the word bowels. Now, we certainly don't think about loving someone with those part of our anatomy that is found there, but we use the word heart in much the same way. We say to people, I love you, and it's often abbreviated, I heart you. We don't really love with that physical blood pump. You see, it's a use of a word... The idea of affection and mercy. The fact that you really care, you have some tender mercies. In Colossians 3.12, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. He's describing the kind of attitudes. So if you have, to begin with, this consolation in Christ... If you have this comfort of love, if you have this fellowship of the Spirit, if you have this affection and mercy, then what? There are four conditions and then four results. And he says, being like-minded. Being like-minded. I want you to notice the emphasis on the mind and on the thinking in these verses we're studying. I believe that what occurred at Philippi was there was some discontent, I guess you'd say. Disagreement. And Paul would say in chapter 3, verse 16, Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by this same rule. Let us be of the same mind. Let us 
working together here now. Chapter 4, verse 2, I implore Yodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. We know there's already two women who have some disagreements. Paul's wanting everybody to have the same mind here. And then he says, having the same love. When you think about the same love is, here's a young man who looks to a young woman and he says, I love you. And she looks back and she says, but I don't love you that much. There's not the same love. The same love he is talking about is each person having the same love toward one another so that it's equal among each other. In 1 Peter 3, verse 8, he says, Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers. Be tenderhearted. Be courteous. Chapter 4, verse 8, Above all things, have fervent love for one another. For love will cover a multitude of sins. Love that he describes here, that if we have the same love for one another, it will take care of a lot of the problems. Number three, being of one accord or united in spirit. This is the only time this original word is used in the Bible. And it carries with it the idea that our spirits are united together. You know, there's times in which we may give the same answer to a question, but our hearts are not united together. We don't have the same spirit. You, we've got to work together, as Paul would put it, like a team does. And everybody has to have that same team mentality here. That's the idea of being of one accord. And then he comes back and he says, having one mind. That sounds an awful lot like that first thing. But the word mind here means to form or hold an opinion. He's talking about people who have such a united spirit that they not only think alike, but they even have the same goals and aspirations together. Now with that exhortation, Paul's saying, this is what I want you to be. Let's look at verses 3 and 4. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. Paul explains how to accomplish what he has just encouraged them to do. A lot of times someone would say, now you need to do this. Well, how do I do it? I need some direction. I need some explanation. Well, Paul's going to do that. He's going to explain it negatively and positively. You don't do this, but you do this. First thing he says, nothing should be done by selfish ambition. The original King James has the word strife here. The word is found back in chapter 1 when he talks about some preach Christ of... Envy and strife. 
talking about people who have this personal goal to make life all about themselves. The original word here described, first of all, a man who used to go and work just for the money that he got paid. He wasn't interested in the job, just wanted the money. Later on, as the word began to be used and developed, it carried with it the idea of a person who was nothing more than just concerned about himself. Finally, it came to be a person who was of a partisan spirit, like a a politician might be. In James chapter 3, verses 14 through 16, James writes, But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, and demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. When people are self-motivated about themselves, James tells us you're going to have all kinds of confusion and evil things being done. And then he uses the word conceit. You often try to identify what words really mean. This means an exaggerated self-evaluation. Or if you look throughout the rest of the Bible, you'll find people who think more highly of themselves than they ought to think. People who have an elevated view of, this is my worth. It's all about me. On the other hand, he offers some positive views. He says, in lowliness of mind. The word here is translated humility in a lot of other places. Let me give you a good example. Romans 12:16. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. When you have someone here as normal, if they humble themselves, they, they put themselves down just a little bit on the ladder, so to speak. Other people put themselves high, and so what we have here in Paul speaking is, he says, don't put yourselves up. Do have a lowly mind. Do esteem others better than yourself. The word esteem means to count, to reckon. It's used in chapter 2, verse 6. Who being in the form of God did not consider, did not count, did not esteem it robbery to be equal with God. It's also found in chapter 3, verse 7, where he says, But those things that were gained to me, these I have counted or esteemed as loss for Christ. What you find is is that Paul is saying here, it's all about your perception of yourself. And then he says, not looking each of you to his own things, but for the things of others. We've got to make sure that as we look and as we think and as we ponder and as we consider, it's not all about how I feel. It's not all about how I think. I've got to be willing to listen to other people to do things that will benefit them. 
Well, then when I get to verses 5 through 8, I have a great example. Paul writes, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Jesus is always the perfect example. Whenever you have a teaching in Scripture that tells us what we ought to do, and you want to find out how to do it perfectly, you always go to the example of Jesus. The first emphasis must be placed on the mind. In other words, to live like Jesus lived, you've got to think like Jesus thought. Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. The way Jesus thought, that's the way I'm supposed to think may not always be natural to start with, but you have to learn to do that. Then there are several key words in this passage that I'd like to explore for just a moment or two with you. Jesus was equal with God, but he did not consider robbery to be equal with God. The word robbery here in the New King James The American Standard translates to be grasped, is in other places translated taken by force. Let me give you a couple of illustrations. Matthew chapter 11 and verse 12. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. Or in John 6.15, Therefore when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain himself alone. Jesus did not think that being uh, being equal with God is something that he ought to cling on to, hold on to, by force and say, No, I'm not giving it up. That's the idea in this passage. The idea of did Jesus have the power and the strength to hold on to his position? And the answer is yes. But he didn't do it. He didn't do it. And then that phrase, equal with God, what does that really mean? In John 1 and verse 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. That's Jesus. He is God in the flesh. Hebrews 1 and verse 3 says, Who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person. When you think about who Jesus was, you do not bring Him down and say He's something less than God. He was on an equality with God. Third word, third thought that's here. He made himself of no reputation. The American Standard says, but he emptied himself. 
that word there has some very strong implications of it. I don't know that I fully grasp everything that's involved in Jesus emptying himself. But I do know that something I learned studying for this lesson that I'd never seen before is that there are four participles that follow this verb. Whenever you have participles that follow a lead verb in a passage, they're always explaining words, explain how something is done. And so the four participles that are used here, it says that he was taking the form of a bondservant, a slave. When Jesus emptied himself, what he did was to make himself a slave. Now, there's the word in the New Testament, servant, and then there's the word bondservant, and there's a distinction. A servant is one who serves. A bondservant is a man who's owned by somebody else. Jesus took the form of a bondservant, meaning that he gave up all of his power to claim. I'm owned by someone else. They guide me. They direct me. He took that position. Number two, he was coming in the likeness of men. I think this has reference to his entrance into this world. Jesus' lowly entrance into this world. I cannot think of a much humbler beginning than to be born in a place where animals stay because there's no room in the end. To be able to be placed in a trough, feed trough or water trough, a manger. To live a very humble life growing up. And then Paul follows it being found in appearance as a man in the sense that now he occupies all of the characteristic men. And there's so much to that that could be discussed, that he was tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin, went through everything you and I have gone through. And number four, became obedient to the point of death. You see, if you will, a logical progression of what it takes. He first became willing to be a servant. He came in the fashion or the likeness of men. He then was found in the appearance of a man and then he went all the way to the point of humbling himself to obedience. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor that through his poverty you might become rich. Hebrews 2, 17 says, Therefore in all things he had to be made like unto his brethren that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Jesus was a great example of what it means to not think about yourself, to think about others, and do what it takes for their good interest. God seeks that his children work together I can tell you what the Lord expects out of the church here at Bobby Branch. He expects each of us individually to not think so much about ourselves, but to think about our brothers and sisters in Christ 
He expects us to not only get along, but he expects us to see things alike, to be unified in both our purpose and our preaching, to have the same goals and the same gospel. And the question we end, are you standing with the faithful of God? This morning, if you are not a Christian, just consider the great blessing and privilege to be in fellowship with those who love God, those who want to serve Him and please Him, and also to be in fellowship with the Godhead itself. If you believe that Jesus is the Christ, repent of your sins, confess your faith, and then be baptized for the remission of those sins. If you're one of God's children and you've been walking out of step in your own sinful way, why not come back home? Would you come as we stand inside?